Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of our podcast series called Catching the Last Wave. I'm Julia Fabris and I will be your host today. Our guest for today's episode is distinguished professor Steven Ratuva, an award-winning political sociologist and global interdisciplinary scholar. Professor Ratuva is the director of the Macmillan Brown Center for Pacific Studies at the University of Canterbury. He was elected into the New Zealand Royal Society, the Aparangi, in 2020 for research distinction and awarded the 2020 Major Medal, the country's highest award in social science research excellence. Distinguished Professor Ratuva was also co-winner of the 2019 University of Canterbury Research Medal, the university's highest academic honor. He is the world's first Pacific Islander to be promoted to Distinguished Professor, the highest rank in academia. Professor Ratuva is also recipient of a number of research grants by the New Zealand Health Research Council, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and others, totaling a few million dollars. He also sits on several government-appointed boards and he is an advisor for a number of regional and international agencies. Distinguished Professor Ratuva was a Fulbright Professor at the University of California in Los Angeles, at the Duke University in North Carolina and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He is chair of the International Political Science Association Research Committee on Climate Security and Planetary Politics and former president of the Pacific Islands Political Studies Association. He has transdisciplinary across sociology, anthropology, political science, development studies, economics, philosophy and history. With a PhD from the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex, he has published widely on a range of issues including Pacific societies and culture, indigenous knowledge, development, conflict, peace, political change, social solidarity, economy, social protection, election, ethnicity, security, military, COVID-19, climate security and ethno-nationalism. We are looking forward to hear from Professor Steven Ratuva about his perspective on climate security and the implication for the Pacific region. Thank you, distinguished Professor Ratuva, for joining us today. It is an honor to have you as part of our podcast, and we are looking forward to hear from you about uh, climate security in the Pacific and the consequence of climate change on security and stability for the Pacific peoples. So please, let me start with an introductory question. If you can, please tell us about your work and your experience as a global interdisciplinary scholar and renewed expert of the Pacific region. Can you give us a quick overview of the initiatives you are working on at the moment? Oh, very big question. My area of study is very uh, interdisciplinary, as you mentioned. It covers uh, not only New Zealand, the region, so globally. I was uh, chair of the International Political Science Association Research Committee on Security, Conflict and Democratization, and I led uh, an international team uh, doing research on global security in different parts of the world. I put together books and uh, organizing conferences and other dialogue opportunities for scholars and uh, policymakers and political leaders and so forth. And uh, I've also been involved in uh, various aspects of security, in particular human security, Climate security, for instance, I uh, lead a uh, major project on climate assessment in Pacific, covering 16 countries altogether, and uh, some of the impact of climate crisis and responses by the communities in terms of the adaptation strategies, in terms of resilience, and also in terms of uh, uh, look at the future in relation to uh, what is to do with uh, mobility, migration, 
what is to do with uh, deal with issues of land, issues of uh, food security, issues of uh, health, and so forth. And I also uh, lead uh, a number of uh, uh, research uh, projects on health and social determinants of health from the angle of uh, social protection. Social protection is very, very important, particularly in the way in which we put human beings at the center of our analysis of the world. Often we put the environment first, often we put institutions first, often we put the economy first, often we put political institutions first, often we put cultural institutions and cultural processes first. In our project, we try to put the human being in the middle because uh, that's very vital for the way in which uh, well-being is being defined and approached as well. Yeah, so the, the, the number of major projects I've been involved with and uh, in the disciplinary, which spans a whole lot of disciplines from anthropology, sociology, political science, cultural studies, development studies, economics, and so forth. Because after all, the world doesn't consist of disciplinary boxes. Because knowledge, people's experiences, our history, our culture, they span across all these different aspects. So it's very, very important to understand the world in its totality rather than just focusing on very uh, limited boxes such as economics only or politics only or culture only or technology only. All these things are interconnected anyway. Particularly in the area of climate, does not recognize disciplinary national cultural boundaries. It is political, it is economic, it is cultural, it is uh, psychological, it is environmental. And the impact on the well-being of humanity transcends the different disciplines and the different countries in the world. So that's a space which I work in and I've been doing research on. And one of my latest uh, work, I'm putting together a book on knowledge, global knowledge, the crisis of global knowledge, a knowledge of environment, a knowledge of conflict, a knowledge of science, and a knowledge all these things have been changing, have kind of reshaped the way we humans have redefined our identity in our worldview. And there's a lot of crisis in knowledge in terms of the way in which uh, we construct knowledge which is false. The term fake news and fake knowledge has emerged in the last few years. And, uh, and also knowledge of the environment, the different perspectives. And knowledge is very much shaped by ideology, shaped by culture, shaped by history, shaped by the political economic circumstances, it's not neutral. It's not something that you can take and use, but rather it's something which is very, very uh, culturally based. Uh, and of course, indigenous knowledge is very, very important nowadays, particularly in the Pacific, when you're looking at it from the point of view of uh, climate responses. People all over the world have used their indigenous culture-based knowledge as a means of uh, survival. So those are some of the lessons. And also I have uh, I've led teams global teams in the area of ethnicity studies have put together the largest book on ethnicity in the world, more than 2,000 pages, three volumes, and more than 100 chapters altogether by a team of more than almost 200 scholars worldwide, looking at the cutting-edge issue of ethnicity, ethnicity and politics and conflict, ethnicity and identity, ethnicity and economics and health, and how it's linked to all aspects of our lives. So, uh, yeah, so uh, kind of in the display, and a lot of those things have resonance when you look at climate crisis.
Thank you so much, Professor Ratuva. It is great to know about your work and uh, very impressive, impressive work. And I know it, we don't have enough time to explore what you're doing uh, and you're, because you're doing so much and it is so interesting. But on this podcast, we will just focus on one of your field of expertise, which is climate security. But it was great to know about what you're working on at the moment. Especially, I was really impressed by your holistic approach to knowledge, especially in the area of climate, taking into consideration all the aspects that are related. We cannot work in silos, and this is something we sometimes, uh, we have to work on, especially at the UN, not to work in silos to specific uh, sectors, but work in, a, in an holistic way. So thank you very much for that. And uh, please let me go into a bit of a detail in my second question. So among your field of expertise, there is conflict, peace building, and climate change. So let me ask you if you can please give us your perspective on how the climate crisis is related to the security of Pacific peoples and uh, how climate change is creating and fueling conflicts in the Pacific. Very interesting question, particularly in relation to uh, the connection between uh, climate crisis and security. Here in particular, we're talking about human security, we're talking about people's well-being, we're talking about people's sense of uh, their socioeconomic livelihood, their cultural livelihood, their land, their health, their issues of education, issues of, uh, of movement, of transportation, of housing. This all constitute what we refer to as human security. And all these things are subject to uh, the impacts of climate crisis. And climate crisis impact communities in the Pacific and elsewhere in the world in different ways, not only in terms of the uh, tangible infrastructure that it washes away, but also in terms of uh, relationship between people. It separates people and uh, impacts on resources, which then fuels conflict. The droughts in Africa, for instance, has led to competition of resources of water conflict in various parts of the world. And the impact of a climate crisis on land, for instance, as land is being reduced in size, as land becomes, uh, the value of land goes up because of the, uh, the impact of climate change and the competition over ownership, over control of land, who's going to use what, leads to conflict. And of course, conflict of resources, because land is linked to resources, will increase over time. And, uh, and certainly uh, in, in communities, you're going to see more conflict also in terms of uh, the way they frame climate change itself. You see that happening in various parts of the Pacific as a result of uh, different religious ideologies, particularly the new um, fundamentalist and evangelical churches, which preach something uh, along the lines of uh, like Donald Trump, almost like uh, climate deniers uh, in some ways. That has caused a bit of conflict in the community as well, because the way in which climate is being redefined in a way which is uh, not only abstract, which is also counter to the uh, idea that climate crisis is a real threat. Uh, and then you have uh, conflict over various political issues, which is kind of exacerbated by the kind of stress and trauma caused by the climate. Often after a severe cyclone, for instance, in the Pacific, Category 5 cyclones have been quite, uh, quite common in the last few years. All kinds of stresses uh, emerge in the community in terms of psychological stress. And of course, that fuels conflict in the community. When people are stressed, they have grievances which have always been there, but the stress actually brings it out much more. And uh, of course, conflict between the government and the community in terms of responses, in terms of uh, uh, how they, uh, they feel that they have been neglected, for instance. And then, of course, the long-term impact of climate on people's psychological well-being, it has been... Uh, 
found out through research that, that stress, trauma, stress and trauma can actually become generational, fundamentally because they have a capacity to create conditions for genetic modifications in our bodies. And, and then that can be passed down over generations. And in the long run, it has uh, the potential to change the way we define peace, the way we define stability as humans, particularly in the Pacific. And, uh, and some of those uh, intergenerational trauma can be fuel for further conflict in the future. Even if the conflict have nothing to do with climate, the fact that uh, see the, the, the major climatic events like Category Five cyclones have the capacity to make those subtle, you know, implicit changes within people's psychology. But we can't see it. It's one of the the dangers. We can't see it because uh, it's to do with the mind. It's to do with behavior. Unless uh, we have uh, trained experts who are able to identify these things, the fact that we can't identify them means that we're going to reproduce them in our cultures. So we are going to build cultures which are based on uh, trauma based on potential for conflict in the future. And of course, as a result of uh, the major traumatizing events, a lot of families have broken up and children have uh, lost the kind of support that they need. And, uh, and that feeds into the criminal culture, which is growing all the time in many parts of the Pacific. So all these things are interconnected. We cannot see events in isolation. Uh, some of the connections are very subtle, we cannot see unless you do a thorough sociological analysis and then begin to see the different layers at which the impact of climate may be just physical, but the psychological, the cultural impact is much deeper and will feed on. It's a multiple stressor effect type of event. So we feed on to other social issues. Thank you very much, uh, Professor, for the very comprehensive overview of the impacts of climate change on the security and well-being of the Pacific people. It was really interesting for me. Well, I know you could uh, really talk more about that and we could go deeper in uh, all the topics that you talk about, but it was great to have this overview on uh, both on the immediate and, you know, short-term uh, effects of climate change on security, such as the conflict over resources and lands uh, or the exacerbation of political issues, uh, the conflicts within government and community. But uh, very interesting to know also about the deeper and long-term effects that you mentioned, such as the psychological well-being, which might not see as a connected to climate change and the climate crisis, but it is actually true when, uh, when you think about that, that it really has this uh, stressing uh, effect in the long term uh, on communities, families, and, and yeah, on a broader terms uh, of uh, security. So thank you very much for that. Please let me go to our third question for today, which is more about the response to the climate crisis and especially climate security in the Pacific. So in a recent article about the climate crisis in the Pacific, you mentioned that the Pacific heavy dependence on external aid hasn't allowed the region to express their independence fully. For example, as you mentioned before, the relying on indigenous knowledge and the traditional practice. So how, in your opinion, can the UN and development partners promote Pacific expertise and take action to address climate security that are based on locally generated evidence and locally identified needs? One of the dilemmas that we're facing in the Pacific is the fact that ideas about responding to climate crisis, the adaptation strategies, the resilience strategies, are very much framed along the lines of the narratives which trickles down from the top of the COP uh, meetings and regional meetings and international meetings. Uh, leaders come back with fancy ideas about what to be done. And so things are supposed to trickle down to people down below. And that's a worry because uh, uh, you're going to have narratives, strategies, 
and policies which have nothing to do with uh, the actual experiences on the ground. So that's why it's very, very important for the research that we're doing, that we capture the realities on the ground and how our policies should trickle upwards rather than trickle downwards, uh, because uh, the trickle-down policy uh, philosophy undermines people's sense of independence and ability to think, to act, and to do things uh, independently on their own. I mean, a lot of the aid provided by international agencies, by governments, have strings attached to them because they want their brand to be stamped all over the world, in the Pacific, for instance. And, um, of course, the subtle political uh, leverages that you can pull by giving something, although they don't say it, of course. They say that there's no strings attached, but nobody believes that. Political strings are invisible anyway, <laughs> all to do with human behavior and, and, and psyche. So it's very important for UN and development partners to promote Pacific expertise in different ways. Not so much to impose the framework of uh, thinking around climate or thinking around what to do, because there are a lot of smart people, a lot of work, a lot of reflections, a lot of experiences in existence in the Pacific. It's just that they haven't been identified by those coming from outside. It's just that they have been, uh, in fact, overshadowed by the neat, beautiful templates imposed from outside, whether it's to do with security, whether it's to do with climate adaptation and so forth. And often some of those uh, adaptation strategies, they come beautifully framed by some academics from somewhere else, looks good on paper. I'm supposed to pick the, pick the box and fit into those. Uh, that's not how we should be doing things. Uh, and I think there should be a lot of empowerment processes taking place in how we capture local thinking and then have it as a basis for policy framing within the UN agencies, within international agencies, within governments, external governments, we work in the Pacific. So uh, it's, it's very important to do empirical work uh, on the ground, which then can inform the kind of narratives and thinking at a higher level, and then go higher and higher. But of course, there's a challenge because the power structure of knowledge, and that's where my book comes in. I'm talking about the book, my book which looks at the power structure of knowledge in the world not only within universities, also between countries. It is assumed that if you have money, you also have more brain. Uh, you give money to buy off people's uh, loyalty, and then the aid works that way. There are certain conditionalities. They say you must do this using this money because uh, they are going to be accountable back home to their constituencies. Every government gives money has to be accountable to that back home. So if you're on the receiving end, you have no choice but to say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, we'll do all those. So uh, aid has a very, very uh, paternalistic and extractive and dangerous tendency that we have to really critically analyze and, and look at. Uh, what is often seen as uh, aid to help people, you know, whether it's in the Pacific or Africa or Asia or in the global south generally, is often framed in a very friendly, paternalistic, in a subtle way. Talking about subtleties here. Language is very, very important. The language of diplomacy, but hidden behind the language of diplomacies are some of the really nasty intentions of control, of imposition of ideas, and of extraction. Extracting ideas, take them away, and then use them uh, without acknowledgement. So there's a whole lot of area there that we need to look at. And I think the UN system, uh, I know the UN system itself has been criticized over the years uh, for being involved in some of those practices. And I hope that in the future, uh, it will begin to look inwards and reanalyze its engagement with with communities in ways which are meaningful. I know you try, uh, UN, UN has been trying its best, but no one is uh, is perfect. Uh, we're just human beings anyway. Depends very much on who comes in and who goes out. I've worked with so many UN uh, partners. Individuals come in and out. They keep coming in and out like every six months, every year. 
uh, produce a report and off they go. So it's important to have a continuity in terms of some principles of equity, of uh, inclusion, of diversity, of empowerment, which anchors the UN system and other agencies closer with the community and making sure that they privilege the voices, the sentiments, and the history and the culture of the people they're dealing with. Afro, uh, the mandate of the United Nations is, is global, is from people, not just states. And of course, the, the mandate of states are from the people. So there has to be a, a much broader, deeper connection. Thank you so much, uh, Professor, for this uh, very interesting uh, answer and uh, the importance of, of avoiding a top-down approach, like uh, not taking into consideration the local context and apply framework that are kind of imposed from the top, as you mentioned, and uh, do not uh, reflect the actual needs and the realities on the ground, especially here in the Pacific, as well as, as you mentioned, other parts of the world. So. Uh, it was very interesting to hear that uh, of uh, the importance for the UN to, as you said, uh, there has been some improvement to relook in general at the engagement and the importance, especially of continuity. So engage uh, with uh, closer with the communities and bring the people's perspective onto this uh, action, climate action that are taking place. I learned a lot today and I'm sure our audience learned a lot from you. And again, thank you so much for that. It was great and uh, really hope we can work together again. And this concludes our episode for today. Please stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. Well, thanks so much, uh, Julio. Yeah, thanks so much for the uh, opportunity for the podcast.